The Art Newspaper Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Podcast. I'm Ben Luke, and this week we'll look back at a seminal meeting of international avant-garde in 1960s London by exploring a new show focusing on the short-lived but influential Signals Gallery. But first this week, the critic and writer Martin Gayford is one of the few people who can claim to have been painted by both Lucian Freud and David Hockney. In recent years, Gayford has published several books relating to these two artists, including Man with the Blue Scarf, A Kind of Diary of Sitting for Freud, and A History of Pictures, a collaboration with Hockney exploring how artists have represented the world across the ages. His new book, Modernists and Mavericks, looks at Freud and Hockney again, but in the context of their peers in post-war London, from Francis Bacon to Bridget Riley. I spoke to Martin after a talk he did on the book at the National Portrait Gallery. Martin, I think the striking thing about this book is that where other books have been very about very close connections with individual artists, this is very much looking at a broader scene. Can you tell me a bit about why you wanted to do that? Well, uh, I have uh, this archive of, uh, of uh, re- interviews with uh, uh, artists uh, which stretches back into the late 1980s. So uh, I've talked to almost all the important people in this story and also to dealers and uh, curators as well. So uh, it struck me that it was possible to do, or it might be possible to do, a sort of, uh, I described it as a choral work, a, 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 a a, a, a work which is something like an oral history, but with a lot of different voices in it. And uh, what I was hoping to do was to uh, get at the way in which these people's lives and careers and styles were interwoven. And everyone was living in London, uh, a lot of them drinking and socialising and meeting each other, falling out... Uh, <laughs> Uh, arguing, but there was interchange interaction going on all the time, so that actually I thought it was worthwhile trying to do, deal with it as a as a whole question, restricting myself to the genre of painting or the medium of painting. It's interesting that because there have been various attempts to try and sort of harness these artists into groups, the most famous being the School of London, which mm. which is of course coined by an artist in Kitai, yes. but it's. It, they've always seemed inadequate, and the artists have rejected it, haven't they? Yes, the art. Yes, the artists don't like the labels. In fact, the artists, no artists, like labels. <laughs> Virtually, it's extremely un, uncommon to find an artist who accepts a label. But in this case, School of London it is particularly unexplanatory, actually, and wasn't really intended to describe a movement in the first place by. Kitai. I think what happened historically is Kitai came up with this phrase meaning London's a bit more important artistically than has been realised and that there are, there is this group of major artists working in London. That's all he meant to start off with. And then paint, uh, painting was revived in the 80s and uh, people started to try and uh, analyse it as a group. And in fact, all the different accounts of the School of London have different people included in it. So there's absolutely no, it wasn't a group, there's no manifesto, there's no consensus about what it was, who was in it. I mean, is Howard Hodgkin in the School of London? It's it's impossible to say. He's in some books. <laughs> Indeed. So, so tell me about the sort of the connections then, because of course there were very important duos and trios and conversations in pubs and restaurants and all that yes. kind of stuff so they, in a way they were they were they were very 
strong alliances forged. Yes, there were certainly social networks and and indeed interconnections between different networks. So uh, uh, Ewan Uglow, I discovered, was a, a great friend of uh, Leon Kossoff's, who you, you would ex- wouldn't expect they seem to belong to slightly different uh, uh, groupings, but actually, there were, uh, that if you did a diagram of it, you'd get one of these sort of skeins, spider's web skeins. Uh, certainly, there was socialising in Soho, and uh, that was particularly Bacon's headquarters, Wheeler's Restaurant on Compton Street, um, the Colony uh, Room Drinking Club on Dean Street. You would have found quite a lot of major artists on any given day, perhaps drinking and talking, chatting in those places. Whether those were the places where people talked about art is is a, is a, another question, actually. My, my informants say, actually, on the whole, uh, one of the attractions of the colony room, for example, is people didn't talk about art, so they knew each other, but maybe, maybe they talked about painting more in the studio or something. But Bacon was talking to people, on the other hand... Uh, almost nobody really imitated Bacon. He would be the most impossible, difficult model. So would Lucian Freud, actually. So would, uh, so really would Arbuck. They're all so generous. Uh, these people who are conventionally included in the um, School of London and all completely different. And actually, Frank Arbuck told me that when he first encountered Bacon and Freud, uh, Bacon's painting was the opposite of what he was trying to do with that sort of he says a dramatic coup de foudre that Bacon was saying that wasn't what I wanted to do and uh, he said Lucian's painting uh, which he used for which he used the word limning which is uh, a word usually used for Elizabethan miniatures Jacobean miniatures this sort of precise detail that was the opposite of what what Frank was trying to do and Lucian actually noticed uh, noted although he later became an, an avid collector of Auerbach's work when he first saw it, it struck him as being a particularly threatening kind of mess. So there was actually, there was not that much common ground. There was more common aspiration and perhaps just taking the subject seriously. That's it. In a way, there was a commitment to excellence in whichever kind of language they were using. Is that fair? Yes. I, I think that one thing Bacon did was uh, was set the target really high. In fact, almost impossibly high. So he, he felt he almost always missed it himself. But uh, but you, the idea was you would aim for, even though you were never going to get to Rembrandt level or Picasso level, that was really that was really the point of it. There wasn't any point in doing it. Uh, and just to turn out product, just to produce a sort of reasonably saleable uh, work. You were always aiming at producing something really marvellous. And Bacon's made this, uh, I thought, uh, I think, rather wonderful remark. That you, you always hope the next picture will obliterate all the others. One of the things about these artists is not only is their sort of fundamental style very differently, but the ways that they work are all very different as well, aren't they? I mean, you think about the, especially the difference between Bacon and Freud. Yes. Uh, well, it's, if one were to categorise artists according to speed on a sort of... Uh, uh, speedometer. Uh, uh, Bacon's probably was probably quite close to, to to the sort of Van Gogh. I would perhaps be the fastest painter in art history. who could produce a major painting in an hour. Uh, Bacon, according to Lucien, would often do something in a day. He'd go to the studio and uh, Bacon would say, "Well, this is what I did today. What do you think of it?" Whereas uh, Lucien couldn't paint at anything like that rate. It just was impossible for him to do what 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 he wanted to do he could only only do it 
very, very slowly. So he was, uh, his rate for producing a, a medium-sized uh, portrait head would be about six months of, uh, of sitting several times a week. And how long was the painting that you sat for? How long did that, that take? It was about it. That was about it. I started at the end of one October and we finished at the end of the following June. Can you tell me a bit about the ritual? Because he did stick to very particular structures in, in painting, didn't he? Yes, and in his life, although he's, uh, one of his beliefs, in a way, is a, a bit of a uh, little fantasy he had about himself was that he didn't have any habits, but he certainly had a timetable. He, uh, his life, uh, professional life, operated entirely according to a rigid attention to time. And uh, you had to, if, if you were painting was a, an evening painting, as mine was a night painting. You had to turn up at the appointed time. It was six o'clock in my case. And the painting had to be done in, in darkness by artificial light. And it would have been quite impossible for him to paint a night picture by natural light or vice versa. So what happened towards the end, because we started as the nights were drawing in and it was dark, it was probably dark by six when I arrived. And by the following June, you know, it, was, it didn't get dark until <laughs> half past nine or something. We had to draw the shutters and create artificial darkness in order to carry on working. Can you tell me about the conversations that you might have had when he was painting you? There are some painters who are very, very verbally communicative when they're painting. It allows them a sort of to enter into a rhythm. But what was Freud like? Well, he was a brilliant conversationalist and uh, he talked extremely well in a way which I suspect was adapted to different sitters. So uh, in my case, I got a lot of reminiscences about, say, Francis Bacon or meeting Picasso or Giacometti or um, uh, the things which he doubtless felt I, uh, correctly I'd be interested in. Other people who might get horse racing or it, uh, all sorts of subjects he, he could talk about. Uh, uh, when, he, when he had uh, child sitters, he talked quite a lot about animals. Um, and uh, I think it was important... Uh, to Lucian to, to keep the, the sitter uh, as entertained as possible because of this very prolonged uh, working process he had that uh, his secret anxiety was the sitter would just get fed up and say, well, I've had, I've had enough of this. I'm, I'm just not going to turn up anymore. And that did happen. Um, Harold Pinter is an example of somebody who turned up for a few sittings and then said, I just had no idea what this was going to be. Oh, I'm sorry, I can't do this. <laughs> so there's there's the beginning of a picture of Harold Pinter, a couple of Harold Pinter's eyes staring out, out of the canvas. Uh, so Lucian uh, tried as hard as he could to make it good and entertaining. Let's move on to Hockney now. Yes. I'm interested in this moment because the numbers for Freud and Bacon, Bacon, Bacon sustained success through most of his career. Yes. But certainly Freud had a sort of a big dip in his career, which yes. seems impossible now when you think how, how much his paintings sell for at auction, yes. etc., etc. But he did have a big dip, which sort of coincided with Hockney's rise and, and pop art and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Did you did you have you had a chance to talk did you have a chance to talk with, with Freud and have you had a chance to talk with Hockney about that? The connection between the sort of fifties Soho scene and the pop art moment, as it were. I think it was not so much pop as abstraction. The first thing uh, David Hockney said to me about this period, he said, the first thing to, to know about the 60s was abstraction ruled. And that actually, although Hockney was very successful virtually from the word going, go, was, was uh, something he was very aware of, that 
he was virtually the only figurative painter in Kasmin's stable. Kasmin had this very fashionable, extremely elegant gallery off Bond Street, which is sort of early white cube. But most of his artists were Carlfield abstraction, in fact. Uh, Kenneth Noland and um, uh, Morris Lewis and uh, all sorts of big American artists, uh, Anthony Caro and Richard Smith. And Hockney actually was almost the, uh, the only exception. And it's there is an argument that Hockney in some ways wouldn't have become Hockney if he hadn't been in this environment where people he was exhibiting not next to, but just after people were doing these great big abstract paintings. And the, um, a lot of his 60s work actually sort of work, it is a reaction to Colourfield abstraction, different kinds of abstraction, but working off it, but moving back into figurative areas. Now, Hockney is... Um, again, it's interesting that we're talking about mavericks. We're talking about yes. artists that can't really be fitted into schools. Yes. He, he would certainly would never define himself as a pop artist, even though he yes. sort of crosses over with it a bit. He emerged from a scene in which um, Kitai was seen as a real god at the Royal yes. College. And I think, again, that's something that's been somewhat forgotten. Kitai was a real, was perceived as a real genius in that moment. Yes. And Kitai's reputation, uh, it's a very odd case. His reputation took a terrible tumble in Britain as a result of the Tate show in 1994. And I would say that he's probably a suitable case for reassessment, and uh, also that his reputation probably hasn't tumbled to that extent elsewhere. A few years ago, I saw an exhibition in Hamburg of Kitai's work, uh, which was, uh, I thought, made a very strong case for Kitai as a... Uh, a now, as far as work is said, underrated but very interesting and uh, probably rather important artist. However, some, something which I probably wouldn't have liked to hear, but I thought was tr- true when I saw that show. He, I'd just been looking at Max Beckman and German Expressionists, and I, I walked to the next building and looked at Kitai, and he looked more in context actually in that European uh, painterly context than he does in London. I thought the all too human show. Tate Britain at the moment, which has got him opposite Michael Andrews, uh, is actually a rather... It's one of those comparisons that on paper seems right, but visually seems all wrong, because the colour range and the way they handle paint is so different. But uh, but, yeah, to to summarise, Kitta, I think his his, uh, his star may rise again. Indeed. Hockney, uh, it seems to me, is an artist who doesn't tend to like looking back is that your experience of him did you find that he was very forthcoming in terms of thinking about this period of the 50s and 60s well he he uh, reminisces but i think as far as his own work is concerned he said uh when the uh big retrospective was uh being put together that uh, essentially throughout his life he'd never looked back Mm. And I think that's a sort of psychologically healthy frame of mind, possibly even a central frame of mind for uh, anybody who's trying to do something creative. I mean, Frank Albach said the same thing to me, which I think is in, is in the book, that uh, actually if you don't think the next thing you're, you're going to do is going to be better than the last, there's not much point in carrying on. So you always have to have that belief and hope. So you don't dwell on the past, although you may be pleasantly surprised by your 
own work when you see it again. I mean, Lucian Fogg was always a bit anxious when old works surfaced and came to auction. I was like, with, whether they'd be good enough, whether he, perhaps he shouldn't have released them from the studio. Um, and I, I think Hockney was uh, was pleased, actually, to, 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 to see his work laid out at that big take show, uh, that it's, it did seem to him to hold up. And what about um, the, the process of sitting for him? You've had these very long conversations about art history. Yes. Do, do, do the conversations continue through the sitting process? Does that, is that all part of a continuum or are those, or those moments when you're sitting for him sort of very separated out from those conversations? Uh, David's method, certainly with the 82 portraits and Once to Life, which my, the picture of me was one of, was very different um, really programmatically from uh, Lucian so that uh, every picture was supposed to take about 20 hours which is maybe three days uh, sitting something like uh, approximately that which is quite fast it's it's on that speedometer we were talking about it's sort of closer to the f- speed painting than the than the very <laughs> slow process and uh, then and I should think this is uh, normal with David. He was just concentrating extremely hard while he was painting, so uh, there was more or less silence. I mean, occasionally he'd say to his uh, assistant Jean-Pierre, he'd say, "Could I have some Na- Naples yellow, or could I have some Payne's grey here?" On the and Jean-Pierre would come forward with a tube of paint, or that kind of thing, or you know, could you move your your foot slightly to the left? That, but no anecdotes or the kind of thing which are designed to entertain the the the, uh, the sitter of the sort that Lucien went in for. Now, in your conversations with him about art history, it seems to me that he thinks he's always trying to find a new angle on things. Again, again, this sort of sense of always searching for the new, always trying to find different perspectives on everything. Is that is that your experience of... of well, he certainly, uh, David, I would say, has a profoundly original mind. Uh, and he is a strikingly fearless person, which is perhaps a necessary qualification for becoming a major artist. So he's he, he has no nervousness at all about completely recasting art history or rereading it, what we normally talk about as art history, rather than just passively accepting it. Uh, and that was uh, part of the interest for me of, of doing this book with him, that he's got this reading of what... Uh, a picture involves uh, the uh, the intimate connection between painting and photography, and even film and computer graphics, and uh, how these all belong together. Which is not actually uh, a perspective that anybody else has ever articulated at any rate. Right now, tell me what you've learned from doing this book, looking back over these over these uh, interviews about London in that post-war period. Do, do you feel? it's any more sort of coherent as a period as a result of looking back or is it sort of does it remain rather elusive and ungraspable in some way um i think that uh, my conclusion and also in a way starting point is that is that the abstract and figurative part is so to speak, were uh, much less widely separated than you 
than is conventionally thought. And Bacon was rather rude about abstraction, uh, calling Jackson Pollock as uh, painting a load of old lace. But actually, he was also quite interested in abstract expression. And he was, his line was he was disappointed by it. He thought it would be better. Well, and Auerbach roundly uh, uh, says he thinks the abstract expressionists were one of the great mo- moments in 20th century art. It's cubism then. Then the, the next big important thing that happened was abstract expressionism. So he he's very open to um, to Kooning and uh, Pollock and so forth. And a lot of the uh, artists I'm writing about actually belong in a sort of hard-to-define frontier zone. Howard Hodgkin, for example, a lot of it looks abstract. He, he insisted it was representational of emotional situations and sometimes it's a bit representational so he's sort of he's between the two poles um i think it it uh my conclusion was that it's hangs together but more like um uh, the maps that neil ferguson has in his book uh called the tower and the square about networks in which networks have different poles and um they're connected by a multiple uh, uh, cobweb or cat's cradle of lines. I think it it worked like that. So there are preoccupations that run through a lot of people, but they're they're um, uh, expressed in different ways, and um, there are no real movements. I think. Martin, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Modernists and Mavericks, Bacon, Freud, Hockney and the London Painters is out now and published by Thames and Hudson. Now, while Hockney and the pop artists were gaining fame in mid-60s London, a counterculture was challenging that movement's obsession with the United States. Signals was an art gallery in London between 1964 and 1966, but in that short time became a centre for connections between avant-garde art in Latin America and Europe. Originally conceived as the Centre for Advanced Creative Study, its three founding artists were David Medalla, Gustav Metzger and Marcelo Salvadori, and it gave solo exhibitions to artists including Lydia Clark, Jesus Rafael Soto and Mira Schendel. The Mexico City Gallery Curi Manzuto have collaborated with London's Thomas Dane Gallery on a show exploring that moment. I went down to the Thomas Dane Gallery to find out more. So I'm joined by Jose Curi of Curi Manzuto and Francois Chantalat of Thomas Dane Gallery. Um, I think let's begin by saying, how did this project originate? We have been big fans of Signals Gallery for a long, long time. I mean, way before even opening the gallery, which happened 20 years ago. So we've been for a long time uh, of what Signals Gallery meant in art history wise. And so we came with the idea to do this show of a gallery and we wanted Obviously not to do it in Mexico, but where it all happened, which is London. And we couldn't find a better partner with than Thomas Dane Gallery, that we've been a long time collaborators and sort of complices in many things, ideas. So actually when we came with the, this idea, they already were looking at it. So it's so I think I mean there's no coincidence, no? We're I mean well, I think we're connected through it was a sort of natural home francois it's it's very interesting because it's uh 
it's um, we had kind of broached on the idea a few years ago and kind of thought, wow, this is just such a vast project of re researching forensic. This is such an interesting moment in London. This is such an interesting moment in a, in a, in the history of galleries because when when one runs a, a program, particularly in, in this day and age, one kind of always looks at the past and try seeks for inspiration and as well as. Um, maybe some sort of nostalgia for a moment by bygone of you know certain purity, a certain kind of uh, intellectual kind of ground that uh, you know we aspire to. So as as Jose pointed out, we we we've always been very close uh, in spirit, and uh, we share artists as well. And the true spirit of Signal, in in a way, has been carried forward by Jose and Monica and Isabel Whiteleg who uh, curated that show and Malena who, Malena Back who works on the show as well. So let's establish what Signals was then. It wasn't a publicly funded gallery but neither was it necessarily a commercial gallery. It's, it, it's, it's a private enterprise but what, what was it? <laughs> I mean that's a very interesting thing about that. It's I mean, basically, Signals is, is a gallery that opened from 1964 to 1966 in London. It was their founding members is Guy Brett, great, fantastic writer and scholar, Paul Killer, David Medalla, uh, artist, Filipino artist, just arrived to, to, just arrived to London, very, very young, probably in his 17 years old, something like that. Mm. Uh, they, uh, Gustav Metzeger. So, so they founded this gallery to work in an extremely experimental way. But nevertheless, it was a commercial gallery because it was the way for them to carry on their experiments, their way of producing art. So it opened, it, it, the idea was to do, it, it opened in Paul Killer's apartment at the beginning and then for a year, then it moved to uh, Paul Killer's dad had an, uh, 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 a building in Wigmore Street yeah. and it happened there for over a year. They had plans to continue. We can see in the text that they had shows planned up to 1969, but uh, at some point the uh, Paul, Paul Killer's father asked, asked them for the, for the place and that's when it ended. Right, so it sort of kind of dispersed essentially after that, didn't they? So these people still remained significant figures, but there wasn't that same sort of focus of attention in the same way. Exactly, exactly. At that time, there are amazing uh, photographs of them conspiring together. So, and that's that's the that's really what a gallery is. It's it's a sitting on the floor, doing you know, posting, mailing out. Uh, uh, you know, creating these amazing bulletins and publications, uh, uh, writing poetry. It's a kind of, it's a, if, if, if you were in a way kind of trying to conceive of an ideal gallery, if you are, if you were an artist, a curator, a critic or a dealer, you would kind of look at that and think, wow, this is, this is, this is how it should be. Yeah. You know, it was short lived. So maybe it is an utopia, but you know, it's, uh, it's, it's what I was saying. We kind of looked, Look upon that that idea and that group of of people and their aesthetics and their judgment and their purity and think this is you know this is this is pretty good. So tell me about the kind of work that was being shown then. It was very much a, a kind of form of model, modernism, but for instance, it wasn't they 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 weren't really tapping into sort of the kind of dominant mainstream trends at that time, which were, for instance, pop art. No, I mean, I mean, I would say. 
I would say, I mean, it was really experimental. Uh, literature was a very important factor in that. So, for example, concrete poetry. We have a few of Dom Sylvester uh, concrete poetry uh, examples in the show. I mean, they published one of the most important things is that for every show they publish a booklet that was, I was it was actually uh, David Medalla was the editor, which is very interesting because he was the youngest of them all. And so he will put inside a lot of po uh, poetry. He was, he has always been interested in poetry. So you can see some of the first uh, Octavio Paz in Spanish or Pablo Neruda in, 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 in English. So one of the first translations, you can see them there. So it was a, really a, a confluence of, of ideas. So empirical, open-ended, trans um, uh, media art. I mean, if, you, if one wants to categorize, categorize a group of artists, through, I mean, each side of the Atlantic that try to not be categorized, this is what, you know, if you look at Brazilian art uh, at the time, it's the likes of Oiticica who is looking at expand the idea of sculpture into things that you can wear, that you can smell, that you can perceive in different ways. Ligia Clark, you can manipulate uh, these beautiful objects and kind of play with them and give them another meaning. The uh, kinetic art, both sides of the, uh, the Atlantic, in a way, is, is a very beautiful idea of trying to make art that is democratic, that is perceived universally. That doesn't mean that doesn't need any knowledge or, or pre-knowledge of what it is. It's about pure perception. And Medalla, who creates work with with uh, with, with sands, with sand, with with um, with that soap, with bubbles. Soap, yeah, yeah. So I think that if you if one tries to give to kind of give some coherence or post-rationalize, uh, you know, something is probably somewhere in that idea of experiment, of open-endedness, of perception, pure perception. And uh, trying to expand the, the the traditional canons of sculpture making. And Absolutely, art making. there was Lilian Lin, mm. for example, and she was working directly with uh, experimenting with materials, with new materials at that time, plastic and uh, perpex, which now is very common, but not at that time. So they were really experimenting with those materials, working uh, with laboratories, working with uh, scientific uh, researchers. So that's very much the, the spirit of, of, of that. There's a real sense of, you know, just looking around the show and looking at the, the kind of connections between the pieces, you really, you really do sense a dialogue. And, it's, and you know, we, sent, we know that dialogue is such an important part of contemporary art today. People, artists are collaborating left, right and centre. But in those days, it wasn't such a common currency. It wasn't such a common way of doing things. But this, this seems to me to be in this kind of essential message of this show, this idea of absolutely a correspondence across the Atlantic. Perhaps some sort of application of the political ideas of universality and trying to find common languages was a big idea in, uh, in post-war, right? Um, so uh, probably that one of the, the motivation and one of the, what, the, the main drive of this group of people who run that gallery was to try to, to seek for or, or kind of uh, define what that universal language was. Yeah. So prob probably these connections happened organically, but probably they were looking for them too. How much of a response was there from the wider scene in London, for instance, museums or indeed in Britain generally? I mean, we've been trying to understand that. And, and why? I mean, we could tell it was sort of a, a marginal 
no, it, they were they were not exactly the main, not precisely the mainstream, and but they kept kept on working. So we're trying to understand how was their perception. I had this conversation yesterday with an amazing scholar Brian Fair. And why they were not in the mainstream? Why? I mean, obviously they created this space for themselves because they they had no space. Uh, uh, and for example, one of the probably one of the reasons is they were kind of narrowed down or pigeonholed to kinetic art, which is a very narrow uh, uh, description or of what their interests were. No, and so probably they were a little bit dismissed of just art about a gimmick, uh-huh, yeah. a retinal art, no? And so probably at that time that was not exactly high art. And so that's why probably they were pushed a little bit to the side. They were not at all collected by the important or the big institutions in, in, in London and obviously not in the world. Uh, there's one of the later phases I mean, it's funny to talk about later phases of a gallery that lasted two years. But one of the later shows was a, a, a more British artist. And you can tell they were more into, I mean, this more, uh, how would you say, more uh, out of the, out of, not, not the main institutions in, in, in London, re- trying to collect them, no? I think that the, 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 in a way it's very interesting to figure out if that project was doomed because uh, because it was uh, anti-system in a way. Uh, if the, the if the, the 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 idea and I mean kind of destruction was a big thing for some of the artists as uh, uh, like Metzger. So in a way, I think that anarchy in its in its the most kind of uh, astute definition you know uh, rebelliousness um you know bears the, the 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 seeds of its its own kind of you know consequences in a way so i don't know it's again you know it's very interesting because we by Kori Manzuto bringing that show to to here in london it's so interesting for us to actually have that that kind of forensic kind of um that uh, research, that that all all these things that we really were trying to figure out. This is this is good. This is helping us because there are more. There are a lot of questions, and you know, right. And 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 there's just a sort of small amount of museum collecting that that you just trace in some of those British artists. In other words, so there are there are museums that work taking notice and responding to this but they're not necessarily those main institutions as you no, say. No, very interesting, you know, pieces coming from uh, from Sheffield, another pieces coming from the the Arts Council. Um, yeah, I mean probably the the you know the the regionalism contained in the, in in the UK at the time for for some of these artists because some of them were coming from Manchester, some of them were coming from Nottingham. I think it did appeal to um, you know kind of the crowds outside of London as well, which is interesting. Margins looking at margins, you know. Yeah, that is interesting. And what about now, about the resonance of this, the Signals Gallery now? You, you talk about it as a kind of an ideal gallery, but do you, are there also, um, are there lessons in the kind of work that was being produced? Do you see echoes of this in contemporary dialogues between artists today? Oh my God, there are some, I mean, Artists that were in Signals Gallery are fundamental to understanding art in 20th century. I mean, seminal figures like Oiticica, Ligia Clark, Mira Schendel, uh, David Medalla, uh, Takis that is having a show now, 
in Tate later this year. I mean, it's Gustav Metzger with destructive art. He was one, I mean, he was very radical. I mean, talking about collecting, he was completely against doing objects that could be collected. So we have a, a whole archive on his work because not, not, and a, and a film because not anything exists from his, his uh, performances. So, I mean, you cannot understand 20th century art without these figures. So yeah. it's fundamental. Yeah. But, but it's interesting, isn't it, to think when you think of some of the shows that the Tate's done in recent years, it did a Notisica retrospective. There was a, they've shown Lydia Clark. They are, um, they're really broadly collecting Latin American art now. So it's almost like it's taken decades, actually, for the kind of discussions that were happening in mid-60s London to now ripple through into, into 21st century museum collecting. Because it, it took some time for the... It's, it's not a, solely a post-colonial mentality, but it took some time for the kind of more traditional, I mean, more established Western kind of art scenes to, uh, to, to, uh, to not be despondent and look and fawn upon, you know, uh, Latin American art, which was seen as a kind of derivation of modernism, you know, uh, and it truly, it's from the 50s, 60s as well that, that, uh, South American art took, to, you know, took its own shape and its own, its own real identity, to be honest. I mean, before there are examples, but it's really at that time. So yeah, it took, it took, it took even longer for, you know, Western institutions to actually, you know, uh, understand that. And, and tell me about this relationship between Thomas Dane Gallery and Kuru Manzuto. Does it now continue? Is there something going to happen in Mexico City as a result of this? Uh, yes, so we are uh, we are thinking of um, you know what the kind of the answer uh, the answer to that that show can be when our friends have kindly invited us to you know in the same way that we're inviting inviting them in our gallery they uh, they're inviting us in in their beautiful space in Mexico City so we're thinking of something that could actually have uh, resonance but also have an, echo, yeah. an echo you know in a way that integrates uh, maybe a, a previously not unseen but maybe forgotten uh, British kind of uh, idea or movement and we'll see but I think that you know to go back to the legacy and the resonance of signals and you know us, us all looking at it I think that you know, there's no there's no coincidence in a way there's the, the the art world that we we are in is um is not retracting uh but it's expanding in new shapes um some of them quite scary some of them you know very interesting i think what we're looking for is collaborations um and kind of transcending our our own kind of regions and frontiers so i think that's to me the big idea that i take i take from that that project but it's, but it's also very interesting, isn't it, that you, you, you are commercial galleries mm-hmm. and yet this, is, this, look, this show looks like a museum show. I mean, it, it has, it, and it has all the research that a museum show would have. And so there is, again, a kind of blurring between the kind of disciplines of uh, yes. dealing in art and showing art in, in a kind of research-based way. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, this project is, I think, doing this show, we are the ones that are thinking... To start is we wanted to see this show. No, this show has not existed in a museum and institution. Let's do it. But the very first uh, intuition was because we want to see it, because we want it to other people to uh, relate to it. And and the the commercial side of it probably is a secondary or, or a, 
or a third part of it. No, I mean, obviously we, we live and we make projects out of selling them, but, but that was probably not our first thing, which probably is not the same. It's, it's exactly the same with, with, uh, with Signals Gallery. I mean, probably they needed to show their work. They needed to, to, uh, put it out in the world. And that's why it existed. So that's exactly why we wanted to do, to do this show. I mean, obviously, uh, we asked a curator to help us to have a, Obviously, a, a historical uh, coherence. And this, uh, is, this is Isabel. Isabel Whitebeck. She's amazing. She's fantastic. She had already done uh, a, an extensive um, research on this. Uh, she's a great scholar in Brazilian art, in Latin American art, and she already had all her notes ready. She she had a text that ha- has just been published. So she was a perfect collaborator. For this so it also helped us to have a little bit of distance no as well that is very important but all of this to say that it's still a show that has a long due in this city and in this country and in, this is just a very small the, the tip of the iceberg of a full research and show to be done well thank you both very much for talking to us about it our pleasure The exhibition Signals, If You Like Us, You'll Grow, is at the Thomas Dane Gallery in London until the 21st of July. Another exhibition dedicated to Signals is at the Sotheby's S2 Gallery in London until the 13th of July. And that's all for now. You can tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at The Art Newspaper and follow us on Instagram at theartnewspaper.official. Until next week, thanks for joining us. <laughs>